Hello and welcome to another episode of Apt Untold. In this episode, I have a chat with Jay Knott, the Executive Vice President and Chief Business Officer at Apt Associates. Jay joined Apt six and a half years ago after a career with the US Agency for International Development and is now in charge of ensuring that Apt achieves its mission while maintaining financial health. In our conversation, we talk about the origins of Apt, where it is now and where it is going. We delve a bit into Jay's background and why he got involved in international development. We also discuss contemporary issues in international development and what he thinks is important to keep in mind as we move forward into an increasingly complex and interconnected world. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Jay Knott. My name is Jay Knott. I'm the uh, Executive Vice President and Chief Business Officer of Apt Associates. Uh, my role in the company really is to, to drive our business portfolio strategy. I oversee all of our business units, whether they are internal or, or subsidiaries, uh, like our Australia uh, operations, and uh, really to, to look at how, as a company, we can fulfill our mission and maintain our, our financial health. So can you uh, tell me a little bit about a little bit about your background and uh, what brought you to APT? Right. So I, I came to APT uh, approximately six years ago after a, a career with uh, the U.S. Agency for International Development, uh, one of our largest clients, um, during which as, as a member of the Foreign Service, I served in South America, Africa, and the Middle East. Uh, my last position was overseeing uh, the American Foreign Assistance Program in Jordan. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, APT in general, uh, where we've been, where we are now, and where we are going? Sure. So I think it all starts with our creation story. So we were started by Clark APT in 1965, and our creation story is we, we, we began in a room above a machine shop in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, Clark is a, a MIT grad, and he started with a few friends, not very many, a few friends, with the central concept that if we could use and employ uh, evidence and data-driven analysis and apply it to social policies, we would end up with better results um, and more positive outcomes for populations. Um, that's quite, quite forward-thinking, I mean, yeah. especially for that time. People are only starting to talk about that sort of, these sort of things now, so he's had uh, quite the foresight. Clark was, was, is way above his time, way, way before his time. Um, he, back in the 60s or 70s, uh, wrote a book about social audit, which is essentially sort of the precursor to the triple bottom line sort of, of thinking that's becoming the rage today. Clark was thinking about it and writing about it in the 70s. Remarkable. Clark, in fact, Clark is, so that, that vision remains at the core of who we are as a company today. Um, Clark, although he's, he's no longer a formal part of the company, remains an inspiration. I was just with Clark uh, this past July, where he gave an address to our, to our staff in, in Cambridge. And Clark today, who's a professor at, at Brandeis University, is really focused on climate change issues. And he'd recently done a trip to China looking at what they're doing with renewable energy. So Clark is active, a renaissance man. Um, he's done a bit of everything, hasn't he? Done a bit of everything. If you go to our Cambridge offices, you can see paintings that he's done. Um, 
he, he's just a remarkable human being. Mm. So um, <clears throat> that's a bit of apps past. Uh, where do you see us? Uh, where, where are we? Uh, where is apt at the moment? So from that <clears throat> humble start um, above the uh, machine shop in Cambridge, Massachusetts, we've grown to today we're approximately uh, 2,500 staff uh, operating in some somewhere between 45 and 50 countries around the world. Still with the core vision um, and applying it to, to our mission of improving the, the lives and well-being of, of people around the world. And how do you see uh, international development changing um, in the near future? So I think the, there's a growing realization that over the past quarter century, we have seen significant improvements in poverty levels around, around the world. Um, half as many people in poverty, deep poverty has, has decreased. There's still serious, serious issues, and instability around the world doesn't help at all. Um, climate change and its impact on vulnerable populations doesn't help at all. Still, I think the main story going forward in international development is that it's, it's less about what do you do in, in poor countries, as if international development is separate from development in other countries, and more about how do we exchange learnings with how you deal with social problems wherever they are, and what are, what are the best ways and appropriate ways in, in countries and in regions to attack those problems. So given the, uh, you know, the breadth of, uh, well, the number of countries that we work in, um, can you just talk a little bit about how to manage, you know, um, all of the different, uh, the parties involved? So you have to deal with the, you know, the local politicians and what's going on in the context of the country. You've got, uh, you know, uh, APT and uh, what, what we are trying to achieve. You've got the local population. Uh, how just talk, can you, could you talk about your experience in basically balancing all of these things and trying to come out with the best, uh, the best result? Sure. So I think a good example is um, if we, if let's, let's take the case of, of uh, public health in Nigeria. Uh, Nigeria is a, a difficult environment um, in which to, uh, for anyone, uh, whether you're a local government, a, f a foreign donor, or a, a company like ourselves to achieve momentum and ultimately uh, positive outcomes because it is a complex, uh, difficult environment. Um, yet I think through our ability to uh, gain the trust of our client, in, in this particular case, the, the British Foreign Aid Program, and work with the federal government of Nigeria and state governments and local uh, leaders were able to do a few things. One was to uh, essentially participate in the movement to have a law passed um, that really set as a target um, how much of, of GDP a particular state should target in terms of an investment in public health because that was a, a real problem. If you don't invest enough resources, you can't expect to have positive outcomes. Then to work with state governments with one, fulfilling um, and meeting that target, and then uh, working with uh, public health authorities to ensure that the investments 
um, would be directed to, to best achieve positive health outcomes for the people of Nigeria. So working you know, from outside the country, inside the country, on, on down through various levels, our ability to engage um, with people um, in, a, in a, again, a data-driven, evidence-fueled way um, based on experience and, and real thought leadership, I think better enables us to be effective. Um, what are some challenges that you see uh, in international development in the near future? So a, I think a big challenge which we're facing and working on right now is <clears throat> how um, emerging diseases um, and climate change are, are interacting to pose a global threat. So it's no, you don't, it's no longer you have, to, you have to go to central uh, Democratic Republic of Congo to, to get some sort of exotic disease. Um, things like Zika, um, Ebola, and other things travel, and they, they can become threats in developed and developing countries alike. And so I think many people are realizing that, and they're beginning to mobilize um, efforts to think about emerging disease, um, not just as a health issue, but as a national security issue. Are there global agencies uh, with the resources to deal with these um, issues currently? I mean, so I'm, I'm sure if, if you ask um, the folks at WHO, mm -hmm. um, they would say that that they're they're working on it. But I I, <laughs> I think it's also true that most people recognize they're under resourced yeah. um, to to handle that. Mm -hmm. If you look at the United States, this is something that's no longer simply the the province of our Centers for Disease Control. This is something, an issue that's been taken on, taken on by the White House. Um, the Department of Defense is putting resources into it. Um, our Department of Homeland Security is putting resources into it, along with CDC and others. So again, um, this is something that's, that's, that's being ramped up, um, and other, I think other countries will do the same. We, in fact, if you look at Zika as, as a sort of the current present, present case of that, um, we're working both for our Centers for Disease Control and the U.S. Agency for International Development um, overseas and in the United States to deal with a mosquito-borne disease. Perhaps um, you could just talk a little bit about your background and how did you come into the international development sphere of things? So I was, um, I was born in the, in the deep south of the United States in, in Alabama, um, grew up. Yeah, primarily in Chicago, and uh, went to the east coast of, of our country for, for um, my university and, and further education. I think I uh, began with a real curiosity about the world because I didn't get to see much of it um, until I was, I was uh, older and older in life. Um, and so I, I studied economics and political science at the university. I went on to law school and eventually started with uh, the U.S. Agency for International Development uh, working in, in West Africa. Um, and, and so it was your drive to see more of the world that got you involved in international development? Yeah, I wanted to see more of the world. I wanted to have 
um, an impact because I, I, I thought that somehow, um, whether it's poverty or in the United States or poverty over overseas, shouldn't be a, a permanent condition. Because looking at my own family history, um, we rose out of, out of uh, deep poverty and, and oppression in, in, the, in the deep south of our country and, and, and became um, more successful. And so I, I, I thought that's something um, that if we had the potential to do that, other people should as well. So uh, is there anything that you want to say to the people uh, listening out there? Sure. So the reason I joined that after um, 20 plus years in the foreign service working, working um, around the world was I saw it as a company that was really good at connecting dots. And I think that is a, an incredible skill in, in the world today. Again, Especially the global complexity. Exactly. Practically given global complexity. So I think what we are really able to do is able to employ the breadth and depth of our experience built up over 50 years and apply it in broader and more effective ways to problems around the world, such that um, the research and evaluation uh, capabilities that we have uh, in the United States are having more utility overseas. Meanwhile, our ability to implement um, hands-on projects overseas is coming into greater utilization in the United States. And so again, if you look at international development writ large, I think the future is about how to apply lessons, lessons in a cross-border multidisciplinary way, taking lessons from whichever environment they've been developed and determining how appropriate they can be for the challenge or situation you're facing yourself. Uh, could you talk about, um, well, APT is, you know, for-profit, right? And how does that uh, benefit um, achieving the mission uh, compared to a not-for-profit and what are the, the uh, benefits and detriments uh, there in your mind? Sure. So I think, um, in my mind, the profit nonprofit uh, divide is really, in, in many ways, um, not particularly important. Uh, I think if, if you look at the nonprofit world, um, they don't call what they do profits, it's called surplus. Um, I think that the question is, and the challenge for any organization is how do you carry out your mission while maintaining sufficient financial health to recruit and retain the best people um, and to ensure um, that, the, that the work and life of the, of the organization continues. We've chosen to do that as a for-profit company because it, it makes sense for, for the, the model in which we're working. We're, we are, um, a company that's mission-driven, we're not profit-maximizing. Um, and what we're trying to do is essentially ensure that we're offering value. When, when you say you're mission, well, you know, we're mission-driven and not profit-maximizing, how does that uh, you know, uh, come into play? How, well, not come into play, but how does that uh, transpire? What are the things that happen in the day-to-day -day that, uh, that make that uh, become realized? 
So first of all, um, our clients increasingly are putting pressure on any sort of surpluses or, or, or fees that you want to, to generate. So it's, it's not a, a field in which you're going to maximize profits. It's, this is not uh, big pharma, it's not biotech, it's not aerospace. Um, and, and so it's, it, there, there's self-limiting pressures that you have to accept if you want to participate in, in this sector. Uh, why is uh, Australia and yeah? So why is Australia and the Asia Pacific important to Apps Future and perhaps the world uh, in general? Sure. So um, Australia and the Pacific are are important for lots of reasons. Um, there are, there are uh, if you look at the countries in the region and, and what's happening in terms of population growth in terms of um, future challenges with regards to, to health and, and what have you, um, these are just important countries, whether it's Indonesia or Papua New Guinea or, or anywhere you go in the region. We believe it's a, a geographic region where our capabilities um, can really be useful to countries, governments, and the people to, uh, again, really generate uh, better outcomes of policies and, and projects. All right. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to, to say to the people listening? Um, just if you are um, a person who's who's looking to get into the field, uh, take a look at our website. Um, we have opportunities there. Um, but most important, I think you want to take a look at the work that we're doing, um, and perhaps it, it can give you inspiration about what you want to do with your own career. Yeah, well, thank you. Sure. Perfect <laughs> well, thanks again to Jay for taking the time to have a chat. He had a very busy schedule while he was down here in Brisbane, so I'm appreciative of the fact that we got the chance to talk and to get some insight into international development from an industry veteran. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. So we've got an exciting episode in the works. The other day, I had a great long chat with Karen Harmon, head of company culture here and one of the longest serving employees here in Brisbane, having joined back in the days of JTA. I'm going to release two episodes this time. Uh, one will be a condensed version that will enable you to get a snapshot of Karen and her experience in international development. But the other one will be the entire interview. Uh, because we ended up chatting for about 40 to 45 minutes and it's filled with some of Karen's exhilarating stories, uh, including the time she was chased by a Hutu militia out of Rwanda and what it was like living off the grid working as a spiritual midwife. So I hope you're excited. Uh, that's all for now. Thank you for listening.